lesson comes to us from the good news according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Uh, And just by way of introduction, it's a fairly long passage. Uh, So let me remind you where we are. We're in Jesus, uh, at least in in Matthew, his first great sermon. Uh, It's a sermon on a mountain. We're right in the middle of it. Third week, we've been reflecting upon it. Uh, And I won't refer to this in great detail during the sermon because it's such a large passage. Jesus covers so many things. We're going to kind of take a drone uh, video view of it, if you will, during the sermon. So just pay careful attention this morning, as you always do, but listen to it carefully this one time. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the gospel of our Lord. I would encourage you, if you haven't been here, to think of this reflection together, this sermon, this time, uh, as part three of a three-part series as we're working through Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is doing so much here, uh, not just in terms of content, but in terms of its implication for our lives. I feel like you could spend years just doing the Sermon on the Mount line by line and preaching for it um, and not even get to the 
much below the surface even, not, to get, not even scratch the depths of it. So there's a lot here. I'm going to try to give us a bird's eye view of what Jesus is up to here as he starts to critique the practice of religion in this day. And it, I want you to keep these kind of questions in mind as we reflect. What is, if you're a person of faith, what is your faith for? What's your Christianity meant to do for you and for the world? Our religion. How are we supposed to understand it? Our organized life together. What's the purpose? You probably read one of many articles over the last decade or so uh, that's about this rise in a population in America called the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S. The nuns, as I understand, are probably actually decreasing. But these nuns are increasing. Uh, These are people that every year they take polls and you ask people's uh, lots of different demographic questions, but ask about their religious practice. And of course, for a very long time, America has been a very religious country and largely, uh, at least in terms of answering surveys, a Christian uh, majority country. Uh, But there's this fastest growing religion in America is the nuns. The single fastest, and this is all according to Pew, the Pew Center for Research, okay, so, uh, and, and other ones, but especially them. The single fastest growing religious group of our time is those who check the box next to the word none on national surveys. In America, this is now 20% of the population. Uh, by the year 2070, which may seem like a long time for some of you, but it's actually, will go by quick, I'm sure, uh, Christianity for the first time in American history will be a minority religion in the country. So who are these unaffiliated, and what caused the seismic shift in our culture? This is from an article on the Pew Research Center's website from 2012, so already dated. It says this, the number of Americans who do not identify with any religion continues to grow at a rapid pace. One-fifth of the U.S. public, a third of adults under 30, are religiously unaffiliated today. This is the highest percentage ever in our Pew Research Center polling. In the last five years alone, again, this is over a decade ago, the unaffiliated have increased from just over 15 to 20% of all adults. This large and growing group of Americans is less religious than the public at large on many conventional measures, including frequency of attendance at religious services and the degree of importance they attach to religion in their lives. However, a new survey, and I'll skip all the people, the eminent people that put it together, uh, finds that many of the country's 46 million unaffiliated adults are religious or spiritual in some way. Okay, so they're putting this new idea here that people check no next to religious, but they also add that they find themselves to be spiritual in some way. Two-thirds of people say they believe in God. More than half say they often feel a deep connection with nature and the earth. More than a third classify themselves as spiritual but not religious. And one in five say that they pray every single day. In addition, most religiously unaffiliated Americans think that churches and other religious institutions benefit society by strengthening community bonds and aiding the poor. With few exceptions, though, the unaffiliated say they are not looking for a religion. They are not looking for a religion, even one that would be right for them. So here's this class of people. We didn't need the Pew Center to tell us as New Yorkers, did we? That's spiritual. Even believers in God and Jesus sometimes... There's this rise of people that are spiritual but are not interested in organized religion, not interested in anything that we are up to as a church, it seems. And one thing that I agree with them is I'm not that interested in organized religion. I'm interested in disorganized religion. I like to joke because I'm a very disorganized person. But it raises the question, what do people reject when they reject religion? 
If more and more people are saying, I'm spiritual, I actually believe in God. Some of them, I even believe in Jesus. I have a practice of my own with prayer and service, whatever it may be. But I do not want to be part of an organized institution. When they reject organized religion, what are they rejecting? Some answers that the church often gives are radical individualism, the new freedom to create and express your own bespoke identity all of the time, rejection of authority, refusal to submit consumer culture, secularism, declining birth rates within the church and the retention and catechesis of our children, etc., etc. Okay, sure, I think all of these are factors. But what I would suggest is what they are also rejecting is the observable fruit of American Christianity of our too often collusion with worldly power and money, of course, pedophilia and cover-ups in the institutional church, the fear-mongering and hatred of progress and of outsiders that often shows up in Christian culture, and a consumer culture church. This is directly from them. This is the Pew Center again in that same article. With few exceptions, The unaffiliated say they're not looking for religion that would be right for them. Overwhelmingly, they think that religious organizations are too concerned with money and power, too focused on rules, and too involved in politics. That's the answers they gave. I would suggest then, if we take them at their word, mostly they're rejecting a Christianity that has failed to deeply transform its own followers. These followers, Christians, the church, who on the surface at least, and often beneath the surface, fail to live much differently than the culture around them. Whether, as a Christian, you're an extremely wealthy, snobby, liberal urbanite, or security and family-obsessed suburbanites, or hardworking, industrious, but sometimes terribly resentful and angry people in the country, Christian churches fail often to transform their own followers to be different than those around them. As church people, we are often not much different from or better than our neighbors. And I don't just mean, oh, we contextualize and blend in. We wear the same clothes. We talk the same language. We go to the same coffee shops. We do the same sorts of things. That's fine. That's simply incarnation. That's humbly accepting your finitude and your creatureliness and your neighbor's in your neighborhood. What I mean is that we don't often bear fruit, observable fruit, that proves to the world we are connected to the subterranean giver of life, that we are not connected to the vine in such a way that his life is coming into our lives together and our way of life and bearing fruit. We show no signs that we're hooked up to a greater power source, no light and salt in the way, in the words of Jesus last week. We are simply not inspiring to the people around us. Jesus, just before this, we read it last week, said, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They're going to see what you do. It's going to light everything up, and they're going to give glory to God because of it. And yet, and I could have picked a million different things. I just, these are the ones that I know, I'm familiar with and came to mind. Divorce rates. Within the church, 14%. Guess what the divorce rates are in the nun community? 12%. 
tithes and gifts. It's a very easy biblical argument. Minimum of 10% of your gross income with joy, generously given. Only 5% of Christians give a full tithe, and the average giving is 2.5% of your income within the church. Jesus, who says later in the sermon, no one can serve two masters. Either either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. We're trying hard. Acts of service, time, volunteer given, media habits, ecology, the way we treat the earth. There is almost no discernible difference between the church and the world around them. People see a lack of real and lasting change in individual habits and in our commitment to systemic issues being changed. And here, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is giving is all about a vision for a very concrete and specific lived-out way of life. See, Christianity has a creed, but it is more than that. It was first called the way. This is the path. This is the way, right? This is how we walk. This is the direction we're headed. Here's how we do it together, following Jesus, living this way of life. And Christianity, of course, is now a religion. It's organized. It has institutions, and that's okay. But it is also an organism, a movement, a way of life. And its true power is when it is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Inspired to be an inspiration. Jesus says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. And when you bear fruit, you'll prove to be my followers. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the question as we dig into this is, is the trellises, the organization, the institution, the activities, is the trellis that we've built, is it there serving its one true purpose, which is to facilitate the health and growth of the organism? Is it helping the vine be safe and held up so that it can tap into the the branches, into the vine, and to grow and to bear fruit? Are we growing? And so I think it's helpful to own up to our own failures. I know that wasn't really fun to hear for the last few minutes. To own up to our failures, and not just the ones in history that anyone can tell you, well, the church did this and the church did that, but the ones now. See, one biblical principle is that judgment begins with the household of God, not of outsiders. That's the whole Old Testament. You hear that over and over again. Judgment begins with the household of God. Jesus says, take the speck out of your eye before you try to, or take the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of someone else's. And here Jesus embodies what he tells us to do. He goes after the embedded culture of the church of his day, directly challenging the way of life of the church of his day, of late Second Temple Judaism in Jerusalem and in Judea. He's directly challenging their religious practices, but especially their lack of supernatural fruit or depth. And he points them to a deeper, more life-giving way of life that transforms, that is the path to shalom, as I say often, Jesus is here giving a new Torah, a new law, a new way of life for his people. He started with the Beatitudes you heard a couple weeks ago. Blessed are the poor and those who mourn and the pure in heart and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then he goes beyond into the great details of all the things that they have heard said. Now, Some of those are direct quotes from the Torah and some of them are just Uh, the way that the direct quotes from the Torah have been filtered by the modern Pharisees and Sadducees of his time and taught. 
So he's saying, you have heard that it might have been said. I know they go around telling you all this all the time, Well, and they told all sorts of things. And he said, well, you've heard that from those guys, but let me tell you something deeper, something truer. Jesus said, and again, I could read the whole thing, but you can listen to last week, that the Torah is good. The law was good. I've not come to abolish it just to get, be lawless. No, 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 no. But I have come to fulfill the law. And that word we'll talk about a little bit later is called telos. I have come, like a telescope, you see what's there at the end. He, I have come to bring it to completion, to fulfill it, to bring it to its end, its logical conclusion, to do what it was always meant to do and to finish it, finish the race, finish the law. He says, of course, the summary of this entire law and the Torah and therefore of Old Testament religion was what? You guys know, what are the greatest commandments? What is the law, the entire point of the entire law, he says? To love God. To love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind, everything that you are, for all of that to be oriented in deep love towards God, and then to love your neighbor just as you love yourself. And that's how we know if we are interpreting and living out the law well. Which again, I'm going to do this little bit of a sort of collapsing the two ideas together now of the Torah, the law being their religion, and then start to think about our own law, our own culture, our own religious traditions, and sort of do's and don'ts. We will know we are interpreting and living out the law well if our religion matters, if it is leading to more love of God with all that we are, and more love of neighbor as self. That is that our intentions down in the bottom of our hearts, the part where no one can see that your deepest intentions proceed from love of God and neighbor. And that the outcomes in the real world, in the culture, in the law, in the media, in our lives, lead to love of God and neighbor. Not only our own, but those around us. That it leads to more love of God and more love of neighbor. And Jesus is here teaching that their religion was powerless and even detrimental to people because it failed to transform them at the inmost and at the outermost. It wasn't leading to love of God and neighbor. He's arguing they not only didn't live out God's way of life, though they thought they did and they were very proud of it, and they were so proud of their way of life that they made everyone feel like an enemy who didn't live up to it perfectly in their interpretation of it. He says, they're not even living out God's law truly. They're hypocrites. You've heard it was said. But I say to you, this is what the law was always about. There's something deeper to it. And so part of it was that they were legalists. Their religion was the law. We interpret the law this way, and we put a hedge around it, and we put a fence around that, and then we electrify the fence, all so that people don't wander in here, get anywhere near making a mistake. Keep the law, do this, do that. Make, you know, all the, all the things you can think of as legalism. Their religion was the law, but they didn't even understand the law, its purpose, or the fact that it was a revelation of God's character, because if they had, they would have realized that it is just a temporary embodiment for Israel in the Old Testament of God's character. And it was meant to help them love God, love one another, and love their neighbors, the nations. And this is where we tend to stop. 
They liked the law in their own interpretation and made it a way that they could keep it and therefore distinguished themselves from others. I guess this is the great problem, to put it simply. It is true that like all things, religion can simply be employed as a reinforcement to your own ego, to your own pride. It can just be another bumper sticker, one more label to your identity. And if you use it that way, then of course, your religion is now the thing to be defended and everyone who is attacking it is an enemy. And so outsiders are there to either become your conquest or your enemy. We can adopt it and just use it as something to make us feel more special, more prideful. This is why you hear things like, I mean, you could study the history. It's not, I'm not just picking on America. Christianity and Russia. Christ and king. God and country. Again, Jesus said you can only serve one master. And if there's ever an and in your self-identity, it is the Christ who will always lose or be subsumed or distorted. It's a failure to love God alone as he is for himself. A failure to love others who aren't in our preferred in-group. So out of love for the true God and all of his neighbors, Jesus attacks their religion by showing how insufficient their practice of it was for true transformation, for light in the dark. That's why he says, you've heard that it was said. And he goes through these things. We're not going to look at them in great detail, although I would encourage you to go read the whole Sermon on the Mount today as an application. He goes through all the things that they're hearing from their religious teachers. You know, that religion and being a good, being a good Israelite is about um, not murdering. Sweet. Most of us are off the hook. Don't have to think about murder anymore. Cool. I don't do murder. It's awesome. Marriage. Well, they taught, you know, there's divorce. They taught this stuff. And they said, you know, if you're a man, at least, not the woman. The woman, you can just say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times, and it's official. Okay? The way that they use money, the way that they had laws and covenants and made treaties and oaths, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about the way you consume goods, looking for food and clothing. Your dreams in life, your hopes, your aspiration, what you set your eyes and your hopes and your heart on. These weren't the things that the Pharisees were talking about. They were obsessed with little things you could observe like tithing down to the mint and the cumin. Did you put your right amount of the mint and the cumin in the tithe? But Jesus says this didn't transform their heart because they cared a lot about mint and cumin going into the temple and helping the church run, but they carried nothing for orphans and widows. He said they loved to gather and worship and pray out loud so everyone can see, to offer dramatic, expensive sacrifices at the temple, but they had no love of God in their hearts. And we talked about this at the end of the last week. The law is good and necessary, but it's insufficient. It can coerce behavior, but it can't change hearts. Only God and his love can do that at the deepest level, at the heart, the seed of all that we are. That only transformation at this level will be, lead us on the path, the way of life that is towards the shalom of the kingdom of God rather than the hell that is often the kingdom of man. And I'll say a word just about these real quick. Murder, again, don't murder, easy, you get off scot-free. And he says, nope, murder, the whole point of that law was that actually murder starts in the heart. It starts with anger. 
just being really angry and nursing that anger and your self-righteous indignation, that is already murder in its seed form because it's a lack of forgiveness. We are meant for shalom, for loving relationship, and that requires forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's impossible to truly worship God in truth and peace and harmony if we are holding on to an enemy. If we cherish our enemies, he's not currently able to be our peaceable friend. And so we need to go and make peace that we can experience Jesus' forgiveness and his peace, his friendship. This is what Jesus is pointing at this, that Jesus can transform the heart. If you understand the forgiveness that you receive from God, how could you ever not forgive someone else? So I would say on the surface, beware of religious people who are always referring to them and they with disdain. Nothing true about God can be said from a posture of defense, said Marilyn Robinson. And so forced to choose, would you rather keep your enemies or Jesus? If it meant losing all your enemies, would you still have a living faith and religious practice left? What would you think about, talk about, and with whom? Now, this is just one. I'd love for you to go through. He does, he keeps going after our passage, but he talks about adultery. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just the act of adultery. If you lust within your heart and long and desire for someone else's spouse. He talks about divorce and desertion as being something much deeper than the Pharisees were teaching. He talks about promises and character, what you say, yes and no, and loyalty. And he says in verse 48, you therefore, my followers, must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, does that mean perfect in the way that we use it in English? Perfection. No. And kind of yes. Let me explain. That word tell us that we used is one of the more, in my opinions, one of, I have a handful of, you can come ask me after church sometime, a handful of words in the Old and New Testament that I wish were translated differently or at least always had footnotes so you could understand. And one of them is this word perfect. Tell us and tell like, and I've, I've said this a lot for those who've been in uh, Resurrection Clinton Hill over the years, is really this idea of uh, culmination, of maturation, of reaching your intended goal, of getting to the target. That's what telos is, is the goal, the full fruit, the full image. And here's where I'm just going to take a couple minutes to try to explain this to you and why it matters. Finish this sentence for me. Hell hath no fury like. Oh, well, yeah, a woman's scorn. I don't know. It's pretty bad. Hell hath no fury like, I mean, I would put Pastor Brian when he gets cut off in traffic up there. Um, <laughs> preach, he says. No, you know what? Here's my candidate for the worst. Hell hath no fury like a toddler who's never been told no. All right, I'm going to go there for a second. This is a parenting tip. It's also a Bible reading tip. It's also a way of life tip. And I think it's the key to understanding transformative Christianity, to true religion. 
I'll lead with another question. What is the key theme of the whole Bible? If you're just like, well, this is what the Bible's about from Genesis to Revelation as a, as a work of a collection of literatures and genres over all these millennia. Like, here's what it is. Here's what the theme is from beginning to end. And you could have a lot of answers, I think. One is just what we think of as salvation. There's a God who created. There's a fall. He redeems. He recreates. That's the story of the Bible. How about a good old-fashioned fairy tale? There's a father who wants to find a bride for his son, and the son goes out to find this wayward bride and redeem her and bring her home into the everlasting kingdom and the palace and a feast forever. Sure. Holy war, not our favorite sort of idea, but the idea that God is there to fight against all the powers of darkness and death and sin that separate us from the love of God and for his intended shalom for all things. And so he is going, using not the weapons of man, but the weapons of the spirit and of love to win back his creation from these evil forces and to give them peace. One that I bet you've never heard is that the Bible is largely also about the maturation of human beings, of humanity, I should say, of humankind. It's about organic growth going from children to being fully grown up together as one new person united to God because we are like him. And so we see him as he is. He sees us in his image. We see him in our image. We look alike because we've grown up to become like him. We've matured. And this is everywhere. Once I've told you, you're going to see it all over the place. That idea of telos, growing. Adam and Eve are naked children in the garden. By the end, it's a worldwide humanity from every tribe and tongue and nation, united and cultivating the earth and celebrating God, loving one another, loving him. You heard it in 1 Corinthians. It says, you're like infants drinking milk, and you're supposed to be having meat by now. Grow up in Christ. He says, all of our pastoral activity, all of our religious work, what is it? Is it to, so that you'll follow us and be like, Paul, Apollos? No. It's because we're watering the field that is you, and God is giving the growth. That's what it's about. Growth, maturation. And here's the pro tip from the whole Bible. God himself did this. Just take the Old Testament. It says that he rescued Egypt out of Israel. It was his firstborn son, and the first thing he does is go send commandments. Do this, don't do that. Parents. You should teach your toddlers, do this, don't do that. It's okay to say no. It's okay to say yes. It's important to say do not run in the street. We have to do these things. God did it with Israel. But they were too mature because the law was in a time and a place and it didn't speak to everything they'd encountered. So then you get to the wisdom literature. First big thing in the wisdom literature is someone comes in, two, two moms well, it's my baby. No, it's my baby. Well, we found one dead and this one was alive and we're both fighting over it. Well, how does the law speak to that? I don't know. It takes wisdom. See, they were supposed to be meditating on the true God of the true law, loving God, loving neighbor, so that they grew up and now had to use it in ways that, oh, there's no legislation for this. Right? And so Solomon King David, they start showing wisdom. You see wisdom literature. You see poetry. You see things that sound like the opposites of each other next. And it gets complicated. And then you get to the prophets. 
Now they're out there in the world and they speak and kingdoms fall and they say something, another kingdom rises up and they're out there world making. This is human maturation. You can see it in ordinary human life when people grow up well, right? Starts out, laws, wisdom, out there in the world, making, changing, participating, being influential, inspiration. This is what we are meant to do and to insist as a grown-up on some tiny little version of the law is to miss the whole point. That's why Pastor Rich Velotis from Queens, an old friend of ours, says sin is not just the violation of law, it's the disruption of love, of growing in love, of loving growth. And so what is the point of true religion? Ephesians 4 puts it this way. This is me landing the plane just because I'm already tired of talking as long as I've talked this morning. (laughs) He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. What for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Law is fulfilled by love. Our religion should be fulfilled by love. It should be transformative. It doesn't do away with law. It just grows into wisdom and into world-making. It must mature until it finds itself sacrificing for the world as Jesus did on the cross and bringing new life as he did out of the tomb. Micah put it this way, all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And he's told you what's good. What does he require of you? What is your religion for? To do right, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so let's take baby steps this morning. Let's try it out. Believe a beatitude. Practice something from the Sermon on the Mount. The more we experience him in his way of life, the more we are united to him, and the more we become like him, the more we become the light and life and love of this world. May God give us this kind of religion this morning and beyond. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.